Let's pray. Almighty God, you are that eternal rock. You are a source of strength. You're all-powerful, almighty, most holy. God, you are the answer. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And God, we come before you now just needing your touch and your presence in our life. We need your truth to revive us, God, to set us on a right path, to give us hope. So God, we come with eager hearts just to hear from you, God, today. And we just pray, God, that you open our hearts to the beautiful, wonderful meal of your word and your truth, God, as, as we meet you in this place this morning. And we just thank you, God. You're so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So there are um, certainly seasons in our life where, just as the song said, it, it feels like we're drowning in this endless sea and wave after wave is just crashing over us and it's overwhelming. Um, I had a season like that actually when I very first started out in ministry. It was in 1993. Seems like a very long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I was this young, inexperienced, uh, underqualified young guy, completely intimidated. And I took this job. I, I landed this job at this church of a thousand people. And, and I was a junior high pastor for a group of over 60 wild-eyed, just crazy, rambunctious preteens. I don't know what I was thinking. It was crazy. <laughs> and I inherited this young, young youthful, spirited uh, volunteer youth staff, and we just had a lot of fun together. Um, but it wasn't long before just the storm of storm clouds started to raise, and we were faced with incredible challenges. One of the first challenges is that uh, I was woke up in the middle of the night and, and, and heard the news that one of my uh, most loved youth staff had swallowed a whole bottle of pills, and um, he was in an attempt to, to end his life. And then not long after that, one of our junior high girls... Um, kind of copied his actions and barely es escaped um, slipping out of this world. And then we were hit with another wave where one of my youth volunteers um, that I had inherited was arrested um, for child pornography. And I remember standing in front of the parents and one feeling just so betrayed by this friend and then two just feeling so ashamed of trying to explain to the parents how this happened under my watch. Not long after that, um, one of the boys in our youth group was, uh, he had this practice of meeting his dad at, um, at the beginning of their condo complex. And he'd be on his skateboard and he'd be coming home from school. He'd grab the rear view mirror of his dad's pickup truck and they'd talk together as they'd drive back into the house. Um, but one day the skateboard slipped out from underneath him and the boy fell and cracked his head open. And I still very clearly remember, you know, just gathering in a circle around that young boy's hospital bed with a group of his friends and holding hands and just praying with all our heart with a young child's faith that somehow God would heal him. And then two days later that boy died. 
and then another wave came where not too long after that, there was another young man and he was out with his dad and they were out in the playing on ATVs and they were out in the, in the desert and they both went up a sand dune at the same time and didn't see each other. There was an incredible collision and the dad killed his son. And my very first memorial as a, as a young minister was standing in front of a crowd like this, but there were all these young kids with teary eyes, some in basketball uniforms and some in baseball uniforms and just staring out and trying from deep within to give them as much comfort as I could while inside, just being honest, I was wrestling with my own pain and, and my own questions. And the dad of that young man asked to meet with me and I just remember he would look at me with these desperate eyes. He was just on the brink. And I met with him for weeks just to try to keep him back from the edge because he wanted to die. And he'd look at me like, can you fix this? Can you make it better? And I just knew I couldn't. I just knew I couldn't. And just being honest, in every one of those situations, I just wanted to run. I wanted to disappear. I wanted to hide. I mean, I was way over my head. I had no idea. It was beyond my own capacity, my own sufficiency, and I felt like there was just nowhere to turn. And it was in those times that I found words that just helped anchor me to God, helped me to lean toward God and reach out and just trust him when it just felt like I couldn't trust anymore. And interesting enough, those words came from this same series of passages from from 2 Timothy that we've been talking about in this series. And they're so important to me then. But I also think that they're so important to all of us now in this season that we find ourselves. You know, because, you know, living out our faith in this world right now, honestly, it, it really just feels like it's becoming more and more challenging all the time. You know, our, our Christian voice just feels like this faint little distant whisper amongst this clamor of noise in our culture, all these shouts out there. And we just, I don't know about you, but I just feel incredibly helpless as it just feels like this gigantic landslide of immorality is overtaking our country and our world. It just feels like we can't push it back. And then there's these tinges of fear as I watch images on TV of, of Christians overseas that are brutally being persecuted for their faith. And it just feels like it's getting closer as, as the scales in our own country just seem to be tipping. And Christians who once were revered and looked up to are, are being labeled today as, as being dangerous and even evil. It just seems that this is the world that Timothy was in, but it also seems so much like the world that we're living in today. And so it's just with a sort of a sense of urgency, you know, that we're looking at these passages. And today's passage is no different. You know, this is one of Paul's last words is he's writing from this Roman prison cell and he's writing to young Timothy and he's trying to give him this last challenge to live out his faith in uncertainty with just tenacity and to finish the race well. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy um, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And so if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there. We're going to go through that together. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you uh, today, don't worry about that. We're going to have the key verses up on the screen here in just a moment, and you can follow along that way. Uh, also, you want to take out your message notes because I've got our first point for us here today. And that's this. Paul's, um, 
first challenge to Timothy was to keep an eternal perspective. To keep an eternal perspective. See, well, um, when adversity just swirls around us, we tend to get disoriented. You know, when things come crashing in on us, we kind of lose our path. And Paul knew that how we view things was so important. And he wanted to ground Timothy once again and help him to understand and know deeply what he was called to do and who was calling him to do it. And so we see here in 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says this, I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. You know, Paul kind of, he, he peels back time and he peels back space to reveal these unseen realities, these unseen but most real things that all of us Christians live under. And he reminds young Timothy that he's not alone. And that God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign judge, the maker and sustainer of all life is with him. And Paul reminds Timothy that God is a righteous judge, a righteous judge, and that there's a day coming when all wrongs will be made right, when evil will cease and God's kingdom will indeed reign on earth just as it is in heaven. And that puts a whole new light on things. It's a whole new way to view life. And there's so many benefits to having that eternal perspective. You know, one of those, an eternal perspective can give us courage. It can give us incredible courage. Because when you trust that God's word is true and that God is who he says he is, then you know for certainty that God is for you. And what in the world could ever be against you? And that God can work all things together for good. And that gives us courage, gives us great courage. And eternal perspective can also give us incredible confidence. You know, um, it's kind of like having the confidence of being able to bet on the 2015 Super Bowl, right? You know, you could, great, you could bet with great, great confidence that the New England Patriots beat the Seattle Seahawks. And the reason is you can have that confidence because it's over. It's done. It already happened. It was last February. But here's the reality about life. We already know the ending. We know that God wins. It's already been decided. You know, God is just being patient right now for some of you to come to him. But at some point, crazy is going to be over. It's going to be done. Evil will be destroyed and all things are going to be made new. Just read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. It will give you incredible confidence. God is in control. And the last is that eternal perspective can also give us clarity, can give us clarity. And there's this incredible freedom that we get, and it comes when we allow eternity to sort of be the filter of all of our decisions and everything that we do, our time, everything, when we just view it from an eternal point of view. See, it just orders all of it when we put God indeed first. Um, one of my favorite characters from the Bible is Moses. Uh, I love Moses' relationship with God. Uh, I love to read passages about where Moses just wants to see God and he's hiding in a rock and God kind of covers and gives him a little peek. And then he goes up on a mountain and he comes back glowing because he's spending time with God and God calls him a friend. Moses knew 
God so well. It's so beautiful to me. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but in, in the Psalms, there's actually a Psalm that was written as a prayer of Moses. And it's in Psalm 90. And verse 2 says this, and it tells us a lot about Moses' perspective about God and about life. And I think it helps us understand why Moses was who he was. It says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. All things are from God. All things are for God, that God sustains life itself. I mean, that's Claritin clear right there. That's clear. And that's what I think, you know, you think about the things that Moses went through and the, the obstacles he had to face. And how did he do that? I mean, this was a, a humble guy that didn't have a whole lot of confidence in himself, but his God confidence was sky high. There's a great um, pastor that I love to read. His, his name is A.W. Tozer. He lived in the last century. And he said this. He said, we must meet the uncertainties of this world with the certainty of the world to come. I love that. Because it helps us, it reminds us that in eternal perspective, it helps change the way that we act and the way that we think. And so that we look more like citizens of heaven than we do just citizens of earth. Okay, so Paul's second charge to Timothy is this. He tells him to proclaim God's truth. To proclaim God's truth. Uh, I don't know if you are disturbed by this as much as I am, but it just seems like society has just kind of fallen into this horrible ditch of relativism. You know, relativism is where it's kind of like, you know, there isn't really any truth. It's truth is relative. What's true for you is not true for me. You know, I have my truth. That's what you believe. I don't believe that. You know, it's, I mean, really, does it even make any sense? <laughs> We're surrounded by this world where God's natural laws are, are they're just order. It's, we take it for granted. If I step off this stage, I know I'm going to hit the ground because of the law of gravity. I go outside and I know that there's photosynthesis happening. I know all kinds of things about thermodynamics and entropy and energy. And all of us as human beings, we kind of say, okay, those are laws. We know those are fixed. We get that. But God's laws, the moral laws that he gives to us, the laws that he gives us to help us get along with him and one another, well, we'll just kind of pick and choose which one we think are true and not true. And I mean, it just says a lot about our human nature, about our proud hearts. But Paul challenges Timothy to be faithful and to proclaim God's truth, whether it's received or not. And it says this in verse two, he says, preach the word of God, be prepared whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage people with good teaching. Now, um, when I look on here, you know, preach the word, one of the first things I think of is uh, Reverend E.V. Hill. I don't know if you've ever heard or seen E.V. Hill. Um, I remember him from the days when I used to go to Promise Keepers events a long time ago, and he was a pastor that could just preach, preach. And uh, but what this is talking about more than just a patch, pastor standing at a pulpit and preaching. You see, the word here in Greek for preach as caroso, which is a word that was used when a king wanted to proclaim good news across the kingdom. It's about proclamation. You see, it's not just for preachers. It's for all God's people. I'm going to preach here. Ready? It's for all God's people of all walks of life at all times. Amen. <laughs> can you hear me? <laughs> and it can be done over a cup of coffee. It can be done in your living room. 
It can be done in your office, at the dinner table. It can be done on your neighbor's couch. You see, wherever and whenever there's a lost and hurting heart, there's an opportunity and a place to proclaim God's truth and bring hope to people. And so Paul tells Timothy and also us how to do that. And he says one of the first words he used is the word correct. And that's to replace wrong ideas with truth. To replace wrong ideas with truth. See, the word um, correct addresses our mind and our thinking. And that's because wrong thinking results in wrong living. We can't live well until we think well. You know, we're bombarded in society with all these different ideas that appeal, you know, to our pride and our lust and even our emotions. Our emotions get pulled into this. And it's led to kind of this paralysis where people just have no idea what's right or wrong or what's true anymore, you know? And this whole uh, big documentary of this is being played out every night on our evening news. And we're just crazy what things are going on right now. People have no sense of compass of what's right or wrong. But see, followers of Jesus have an opportunity, an incredible privilege of helping people to be able to sort through all of this deception one conversation at a time. Have you taken time just to sit down with somebody and help them understand what God's views are on some of the issues of today? Another thing that Paul mentions is the idea of rebuke, and that's to replace bad actions with right behavior. To replace bad actions with right behavior. See, uh, too many people have bought into the lie that, you know, we hear this, I can do whatever I want to as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. Really? <laughs> I mean, really, really, really. Do we really believe that there's no personal responsibility and that really it doesn't affect other people? We're deceived. We're so careful to tip down, tip down around and tiptoe around other people's business. You know what? There really isn't any other people's business. It affects all of us. And so to rebuke is not to take someone out behind the woodshed, but what it is is to speak the truth in love and help show someone how their actions and their sin is destroying their life and also the lives of those around them. We need to really come to grips with the thought and the idea and the truth that sin demolishes, demoralizes, and dehumanizes those involved in it. And one of the most compassionate things that we can do is to help people and encourage them to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. That's part of proclaiming the gospel. And third is to encourage, and that's to replace a discouraged heart with hope. To re replace a discouraged heart with hope. Augustine was one of the early church fathers. He lived a long time ago, and yet his words still they, they really uh, ring true today. And Augustine said this, he said, when regard for truth has been broken down or even slighted, weakened, all things will remain doubtful. And isn't that the world that we live in? You know, our world's dizzy with confusion and doubt and just spinning in circles, desperate people, discouraged hearts, yearning for hope. But see, here's the deal. A lot of times, you know, I think we shy away from bringing God's word and, and you know, we're going to tell the Bible to people, you know, and they're going to go, oh, no. Um, but what God tells us is true, that he designed us for him. 
And we're made in his, God, in his image, in God's image. We were designed to be connected to his heart. And his word is truth. And you need to know that actually every human heart is hardwired for truth. The soul longs for God's truth. Yes, they will resist it. Our human nature resists it. But the soul still longs for truth. And we can help people know that truth and bless them by helping them connect with God through his word. And we can do that in a spirit of gentleness like Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says this. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. I like that part. I think it's funny. <laughs> Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. And be patient with everyone. Uncertainty and doubt are a frightening place to live. It's just so unstable. And Paul says to Timothy to be ready to share God's truth. And there's nothing else that can set a heart free. And next, Paul says this. He tells them to expect great challenges. To expect great challenges. <coughs> um, have you ever got poison oak? <laughs> I honestly, when I moved up here, you know, for a while, I thought I was immune to poison oak. It was, I had some in the backyard, and I took care of it. I was careful, but I'm like, hey, it's not bothering me. I must be immune. And then I got a real good case of poison oak. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the itching is horrible. You just about anything, you know, look for some way to relieve all that itching. It's crazy. Well, in our next couple of verses, you know, the Apostle Paul kind of describes people with itching ears. With itching ears. And I think it's a great picture because, you know, they're searching all over desperately for answers. But they're looking and rejecting the sor true source of truth and instead looking for shadows. And it kind of reminds me, you know, sometimes I'll walk downtown on Broad Street in Nevada City. And uh, right where Broad Street Furniture used to be, I don't know if you've noticed, they have big posters for all the different events that are going on in town. I mean, some of those things are really weird. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says this. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myths. You know, um, we kind of live in this time when, honestly, it feels like so much of our even rich history of our of our nation is being written rewritten um it's disturbing to me when i get in conversations with my daughter and uh i i, I was talking to her a while back and you know we used to learn about the missions the california missions and it used to be taught um about how it's just a great historical thing about how we the california rose up and and how we began to flourish and and even about how uh, Christians were sharing their faith with the Indians. And, and now, you know, what she describes to me is, is it's described as how the Christians came in and, and proselytized the Indians and beat them and abused them. And it's disturbing to me. And you hear other things about how our Christian foundation and our nation is being rewritten. Or even great characters like Abraham Lincoln and all the secret things that he did and all this other stuff. And the Bible itself also is under tremendous attack. Um, it seems to be 
there's a great effort to try to change it and culturize it so that it fits better with man rather than giving glory to God. And yet, we see that there's all of this growing resistance, and yet really it shouldn't surprise us all that much. You see, because the truth is that it just validates what the Bible says the nature of mankind is. And that's this, that mankind resists the truth of God because it's like this light that shines unto our brokenness, you know? It's kind of like, um, I used to, when my wife and I were dating, I used to go stay with her brother, you know, when I visit her out in Palm Springs. And I remember one night going into the bathroom and I turned on the light and there was these gigantic cockroaches on the floor and they just scurry and run all over the place. You know, you turn on the light and they're all over. And that's kind of like how, I hate to call us cockroaches, but I mean, it's like us. Sometimes the light of truth is something that we just want to run away from. I love this quote. And that's this, that embracing truth requires the admission of human weakness, the restraint of human passions, and submission to God's will. In Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, you know, Dawkins, Dawkins launches into this just incredible attack on biblical truth. And he argues that humans are not weak, that we should not fear being accountable to the all-seeing eye in the sky, and that the independent human will should be celebrated, free to make its own decisions and choices. You know what? That message is really appealing to a whole lot of people. You know, it's a message that's been said since the Garden of Eden. And unfortunately, it just resonates with a mind and a heart of a person that is devoid of God's spirit. And I know Dawkins wouldn't like that when I said that. <laughs> but rather than our response when culture rejects God's truth, it can be you know, defensive or angry. But instead, we really ought to think and consider about having compassion. Because Jesus wept over lost people. In fact, he died for them. Jude 1, 17 and 19 says this. But you, dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ said. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. We can expect great challenges to the Bible and to God in general. In fact, um, I think we can expect that it may get worse before it gets any better. Once again, our eternal perspective reminds us that we are more than conquerors through Christ and that we need to stay focused. In fact, Paul says it this way. He says, stay on mission. Stay on mission. So I have a question. Do you, do you consider yourself to be on a mission? It's a great question to think about. You know, what is the Christian life all about? You know, is it, is it more like a voyage on a cruise ship or is it more like a voyage on a battleship? I mean, think about it. A cruise ship. So we get on a cruise ship and we have activities and there's a program director, you know, to entertain us, give us things to do. Oh, there's wonderful swimming pools. There's luscious buffets. And we wonder if the service is going to be good or if the crew is going to meet our needs. And then when the cruise is over, we get off and we go about our business. But see, the mentality of a battleship is very different. Instead of a buffet, there's a mess hall. <laughs> a 
There's no swimming pool. There are armaments aimed at the enemy. And we're under watch and on deck, under orders from the captain who gives us specific duties with an understanding that we're all working together, all hands on deck to fulfill the mission before us. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4, 5. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Paul challenged Timothy to be focused, to be clear-minded, to do whatever it takes to fulfill the calling that God had for him. And Timothy withstood that challenge. You see, it appears that not not long after Timothy received this letter from Paul, that he was arrested for the gospel and jailed in Ephesus. And we learn this from the book of Hebrews, where Hebrews 13, 23 says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released from jail. If he comes here soon, I will bring him with me to see you. And church tradition tells us, again, that Timothy went on to preach as the pastor of the church of Ephesus until he was 80 years old. And the way that he died, his life ended when he went out into the streets of Ephesus, when there was a great parade where people would, were marching for the, to celebrate the goddess Diana. And Timothy went out there to preach the gospel of Jesus. And the crowd turned on him and beat him and drug him through the streets and stoned him to death. Both Paul and Timothy viewed their life as a God-given mission, a mission of sharing the good news. That even though we're separated from God by sin and under judgment for rejecting him as God and his truth, that his son, Jesus Christ, came to pay the penalty for that sin, to die in our place, And then offer us completely new life in him. And that is your mission, should you choose to accept it. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, paints this beautiful picture of this mission in action as a race. You know, and it it paints this vision of in heaven, in this unseen reality. Where God is there, and the old saints of old are there. And the people that have gone before us are there. And they're all cheering us on. And it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So you and I are called to a mission, and it'll be challenging. It'll be more, actually, than any of us can do on our own. But we are not alone. God's mission is the most important thing happening in our world today, and it deserves our one and only life. And in the great words of D.L. Moody, he said this, Our greatest fear in life should not be failure, but of succeeding in things that don't really matter. So I want to leave you with just a few things to think about. There are reflections on our outline today. And the first is this. It's to ask God to sit before him and ask this question. What does living 
with an eternal perspective look, in my, look like in my life? The second question is, who is someone that I need to speak God's truth to? And the third is, what is my mission and what am I doing about it? The answers to those questions really have the potential to lead you onto one of the greatest adventures of your life. I really believe that. Let's pray. Lord God, we just, um, again, thank you um, for your words that challenge us, that inspire us, um, that help us to see beyond our present reality to what's really real, who you are, God, and that you're for us and you're longing, God, to reach out to us. So Lord, I pray um, for those in this room where they're just living in that world of confusion and doubt, God, that they see you now as you're standing there before them as an anchor of truth. God, that their soul, they could listen to the depths of their soul that longs to be who they were created to be, which is your child. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you help us to be committed to the work that you've given us, which is to spread your truth and your word and your life and your hope throughout this world in front of us, God. Give us the faith and the power and the strength to do that and to do that together. In Jesus' name, amen.